the British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 88. I'm Ryan in Seattle. We have a show of two little snowmen sitting next together. I am Chrissy in Seattle. There are no snowmen in June, even in Seattle. That's just the the curviness of the 88. I like it very much. Okay. Well, this week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on British TV this week, shows running in the United States, DVD releases, a feature on Outcasts, and listener feedback. Let's get to it. Well, Chrissy, you're back. Uh, How was San Francisco? It was San Francisco-y. It was just everything it always is, a nice brush of fresh, fresh air to go visit every few years. Other than Monday, when it was a bit rainy, we had great weather, cool but sunny. I got a sunburn oh. and on my nose and visited a few favorite restaurants, saw my old best buddy from high school who lives down there, a friend of mine who I was sort of a, a fan of and wrote a fan letter, and through that correspondence came about, and we've become friends over the years, and introduced her to my old high school buddy. We all went out to see... Playtime, the Jacques Tati film oh, yes. in 70 millimeter at the Castro Theater. A friend of mine was there last week. He saw Vertigo in 70 millimeter yeah, there. Yeah, it's part of the festival they're doing right now, the 70 millimeter festival. And going to the night screening, you first get a Mighty Wurlitzer pre-show mm. where a little man comes out of the floor playing and he plays a medley and then he plays San Francisco, da 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 da, and everyone sings and then he goes back down in the floor. But it's beautiful theater. Everybody should go. I've been outside of it. I've never been inside. It was funny. I think when I lived in San Francisco the year I was there, which was 83 to 84, it was just about when the Castro was starting to attract straight people because of the (laughs) wonderful shopping. And it was all articles were being written about it and everything else. It's a very small little uh, neighborhood, Castro. For it, it, it occupies a big chunk in a lot of people's brains around the world as the gay center of the universe. But it's quite a quaint little district. And we saw naked people. Um, apparently, it's a couple-year-old phenomenon that there's not really an anti- a nudity, public nudity clause in San Francisco law. So, some old dudes like to stroll around wearing uh, sensible shoes and backpacks and nothing else, and they don't get arrested. And it's it's pretty interesting just to be sitting there having a cappuccino and see a naked couple stroll by. And okay, it was yeah. So. I, I brought it up to Darwin, my friend, and he said, "Oh yeah, I know those. I know of them. They're famous for that. I guess there's just a small handful. They're all kind of older dudes who do it. Hmm. Not the kind of people you want to see naked, but no. Nope. Oh well. I think that's the point. They're they say it's they considered a public service to get people over being prudish about average naked bodies. Well, you'll have to trust us that we're both wearing our clothes right now. Yep. What if there is a naked podcast? We can." Look on iTunes. So, Doctor Who ended. Yes. What do we think? There's an awful lot for them to resolve, isn't there? Did they answer anything other than Yes, the river Amy, song question. Yeah. And then what's with the whole pregnancy right. thing. So mm-hmm. that was two important questions. Okay, they did answer that. But a lot of the ones that were brought up, and those were all from last season, but mm-hmm. the ones that were started at the Impossible Astronaut, obviously we're going to have to wait and see. Yep. You found that quote on somebody wrote on television without pity uh, that Moffat is uh, seriously overestimating the average viewer's attention span because not resolving all these long plot threads. Right. Well, they'll definitely have to have a K 
catching up with Doctor Who special before the second half of the season starts or nobody will know what's going on after the long summer for casual viewers to forget everything. I'm sure he's got that taken into account yep. there. And when uh, it's back with Let's Kill Hitler, <laughs> what a great title. <laughs> it explains all the Nazis we saw in the season trailer. I had totally forgotten about them. Yep. Yeah, let's see. Going back uh, two weeks, the Almost People. I thought there was a little too much running around for my tastes. And I thought, is this really worthy of a two-parter? That was, a lot of people felt that too. Were you one of them? Um, no, I was. I didn't feel any need to go back and watch again. And I thought when uh, Jennifer, mm-hmm. was it? when she started stretching into a monster, that was just going back to the Lazarus experiment too quickly. Yeah, let's bring back like, a really yeah. bad CGI creature. Yeah, she just sort of seemed to pop up there. Because he really was the only baddie in the whole traditional sense. And mm-hmm. it just seemed completely unnecessary monster at the end just to maintain the menace. The villainy was all very unfocused. Mm-hmm. Gangers kept trying to decide, are we going to be good? Are we going to be bad? And then there was sort of Jennifer, ha, let's be you know evil and kill all humans. But was that worth you know running around through a monastery for 85 minutes? Uh, it was amusing to have the two doctors. And- yeah, and I think him definitely talking about our co- our consciousness will survive and looking at his screwdriver. I'm just wondering if, if River Song's end that we saw th- four years ago, three years or four years ago, really is her end, or if the doctor's coming up with a way to go back and retrieve that consciousness from the computer, from Cal, and oh. put her back in a ganger body or something so she can keep on having adventures that's just my, my hunch. Certainly a thought. But do you think that this ganger doctor is a red herring for the who got shot in the impossible astronaut thing? He's no. just hanging this thing out saying, so everyone thinks, oh, it's going to be a ganger doctor. Do you think no. it is a red herring? Yeah. Ah, yeah, I, I agree. I think Moffat's far too smart for that. He's very keen to make you think we're going in one direction and oh, we shift gears. And that was quite evident in the, uh, the finale. Yeah, the only impact of... Uh, almost people was the last five minutes where we revealed that Amy had been a ganger all season. Yeah. There was also some thought that having the baby dissolve from her mother's arms might've taken it way beyond the realm of children's television. Cause that was a pretty horrific, especially for people who are parents. For the parents, yeah, but for kids, nah. No? Nah, they could take it. Cause they know it's, you know, nothing, nobody died. Mm-hmm. It's just, Oh, there's been a switcheroo done. I mean, I think, Probably dissolving Amy, who's a character we've grown to know and love, would have been more shocking to kids than a baby that's just been introduced. Mm-hmm. But we know all along, it just means that this was a duplicate and the original is still out there, you know, in the hands of the bad guys. But yeah, for, for parents, I could imagine that would be a little bit more. But, you know, again, it's only a TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Good Man Goes to War. They promised an answer to the mystery of River Song, and I was yep. kept guessing right until the end. And, of course, the good man in the title, everyone's saying, well, that's Rory. That's not the doctor. Yeah, considering that he is River Song's dad, it would seem to follow that maybe he's the guy who gets killed by River and ends ends up having her end up in Stormcage. Although at this point, oh, they're going to kill Rory again? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, a little bit of misdirection, but... We'll have to see if we're all right about that one. But no, I did not ever guess that you know River was Amy's daughter. Although quite a few of my friends are gloating. Oh, I knew that last year. Well, they're smarter than I am, I guess. But again, like I said, Moffat delights in confounding expectations. Like Amy's uh, speech at the beginning when she's describing 
uh, to Melody, the about the guy who's coming to rescue them. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's lived for hundreds of years, and you know, and he's only known by this one name. And you think, and, you, and they actually show you a shot of someone using the sonic screwdriver, and you're thinking, and this man is your father. And we're going, <gasps> and his name is the Last Centurion. And then at the end, when River finally turns up to explain to the doctor what's going on there, and the way they're talking about the crib, you're thinking, oh, no, she's his mom. (laughs) That can't be. Again, he's almost anticipating the audience of trying to be ahead of him and, you know, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And then, you know, he veers, swears off the road. That's kind of fun to keep doing that, I guess. Yeah, I think just the pond the names of pond and river, they were the tip off to me that they were, might be related. That was the only thing I could think of was the, the water connection, but yeah. And you know, is she really a time Lord? Is she the little girl that we saw regenerating in day of the moon? And then she wouldn't have remembered it or is she, that's another she, thing. Yeah, Cause she doesn't seem to be withholding. So did they wipe her mind? Hey, yeah. Or is I, the I little girl she... a previous attempt? Yeah. Well, we don't know what the silence is involved with all this is. Mm-hmm. You know, Moffat apparently has had this idea about the doctor's name. That is, you know, which came first, the doctor or the word doctor as healer? Yeah, they found a quote of his in ni- from 95. On, on a- Usenet. Yep. She <laughs> goes to show everything you write on the internet will last forever. But yeah, an idea he's had kicking around for uh, quite a while. There was a really great supporting cast. You can't fold an episode where any of the guest stars could be spun off into their own adventures. You know, the Nurse Sontaran, mm-hmm. the Victorian Silurian, or even poor Lorna Bucket, which was played by Christina Chung. She was a regular in Monroe, the uh, James Nesbitt Doctor series. Because like, where have I seen her before? Where have I seen her before? She looked very a- much like Amy, too, like they could be related facially. Oh, God. Everyone yeah. will be related to Amy. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. There's debate about whether or not they'll be back in August or September. I would hope later is better since it'll be darker, and that's yeah. what it's all about. This will, in fact, lead to our first news bit this week, which is when will season seven of Doctor Who air? It's been breaking on the internet today. I don't know why news keeps breaking on Tuesdays. But after last week's news that the BBC had commissioned the seventh season of Doctor Who with Matt Smith, it seems uncertain, at least at the time of this recording, when those episodes will actually be shown. Fans assumed they'd all run in 2012, but there are more and more signs that half will run in the autumn of 2012 and will finish up in the spring of 2013. And it may seem like cheating on the BBC's part, but we've been used to having to wait nine months between seasons most years anyway. And if they really think that an autumn launch makes more sense than spring, which I agree with, then this is the way to do it. If fans need to uh, relax about the state of Doctor Who, it's the BBC's highest rated drama series, i.e. non-soap right now. It's making them gobs of money, and people really like it. It won't be cancelled. You only got 13 episodes a year, plus a Christmas special, you're always going to have 38 weeks a year that don't have new, a new episode on. So it doesn't really matter if it's the spring or the autumn. And of course, 2013 will be the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And they're planning lots of stuff there. On Twitter this week, I said, looky what Chrissy found, a sequel to Crimson Petal. Yeah, it came out in 2007, but appears to be out of print. But they're... Because a new paperback version is going to be printed in a few months. But I ordered an older copy because I wanted to read it. And it's short stories based around 
all the different characters in Crimson Petal. So you'll get to learn a little bit more about Carolyn, a little bit more about what Sugar and Sophie got up to after they left at the end. And so I'm looking forward to it. It's not it's not a huge, nearly 900-page book. It, sh- it should be possible to read in a little less time than the, the full novel is taking me. Well, cool. Let's see what happened to everybody there. Yep. And a couple of brilliant TV shows, Misfits and Whites, are arriving on Hulu Plus this summer. Dana and I were talking last week about, you know, BBC America, and and uh, she was bemoaning the fact of you know, Whites having been canceled by the BBC. And would there be any chance for people to see it? And I thought, well, a DVD release is probably the only thing. But I think it's the internet to the rescue. Yeah. They're going to start putting shows on that you can buy you know, that would likely get run here because Misfits is just far too raunchy to be shown on any cable channel short of HBO. And White's only ran for six episodes. So I think this is uh, the start of the new paradigm here where you will have access, legal access to these programs. You just have to pay a little bit of money for it. Hooray. So uh, keep watching that. Uh, White's was a sitcom with Alan Davis as a chef at a three-star restaurant. It was part of a hotel. And Catherine Parkinson was his, uh, the head of the, man- the, was the manager of the restaurant. And uh, Darren Border was in that as well. So you can find us on Twitter at Brit TV Podcast. Other news stories. Deadline.com reports that BBC Two and HBO have teamed up to remake I, Claudius, based on the novels by Robert Graves, about the early days of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. You will probably have seen or at least heard of the 1970s BBC version that starred Derek Jacobi, John Hurt, Brian Blessed, and Patrick Stewart, among others. Now, two things come to mind. First, I'm glad that with this and Parade's End, which we mentioned here last week, that the BBC and HBO are getting back into doing co-productions together. Rupert Murdoch's Sky Atlantic bought the UK rights to most of the shows on HBO, and it seemed to signal the end of HBO's alliance with the Beeb. And as a consumer of many shows made by the BBC and HBO, I can't think of two broadcasters more suited to each other. If I were News Corp, owner of Sky Atlantic, I'd be wondering just what it was I paid for in the first place. Secondly, we get into a discussion about remakes. The original version of I, Claudius was so amazing, and trust me, you really should watch it at least once in your life. Why do it again? You have to understand, the BBC prides itself on constantly remaking series based on classic novels. Dickens, Austen, Thackeray. The Beeb does new versions of all of them every 20 years or so, regardless of how definitive the last one might have been. It's just their nature. I have no fear about this latest remake. Jane Tranter is one of the executive producers. And like all the others, the remake police don't burst into your house and confiscate all your copies of the originals. They're always there to be watched and enjoyed. Yeah, I caught I, Claudius when it was repeated in the 80s. Yeah, I did as well. And I believe they cut one scene out with John Hurt when he was going nuts as Caligula that was just considered a little too much for 1980s television. I watched it and I sort of fell asleep the first few episodes, but then I got into it for the rest of the run. Don't remember a whole lot about it, though. Oh, I love the theme song with the horns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the snake. Yeah. Parodied in Blackadder, of course. That's true. Yes. This week, the BBC announced that Television Centre in London is officially for sale. Wow. The iconic building, made famous by Monty Python sketches that took place around it, was the home to most of the BBC's output in the 1970s and 80s when production was concentrated in London. 
now that it has spread out to Salford, Scotland, and Wales, it was felt they didn't need a large central production facility in the capital any longer. Some were unimpressed. Mark Gatiss, the writer of Sherlock, tweeted, quote, A black, black day. As soon as TV Center has gone, a new report will no doubt recommend the building of some sort of HQ for the BBC. Charlie Brooker said that, quote, It's like they're going to solve the TARDIS and use it for firewood. The main building is Grade 2 listed, which means any developer has to keep its essential structure, which can't be demolished or altered without special permission. Yeah, I think the BBC has sort of taken a page from the Pentagon, which has been very clever and handed out military contracts to almost every congressional district in the country. So when anyone talks about cutting defense money, there's some congressman will say, wait a second, that's going to cost jobs in my district. Mm-hmm. And the BBC, rather than being all very London-centric, is now spread out over many countries with the jobs there. And so when people start talking about cutting the BBC, it will seem more local that, well, no, the BBC employs lots of people here. Well, I've never been to that building. The, the shows I've seen taped were always in the London Television Center, which is just a an office-type building. Very oh, in the South Bank. Well, Dana and I have both been to Television Center, and it's great. And, you know, again, most people probably have seen it because of Monty Python. <laughs> they used to always show people coming and going from there. Mm-hmm. The comic strip is back with a one-off special for Channel 4 in the autumn that will see podcast favorite Stephen Mangan playing Tony Blair in The Hunt for Tony Blair. The comic strip, founded by Peter Richardson and Pete Richens, launched the channel back in 1981 and were shown on MTV back in the 80s. There have been a few revivals in recent years, but The Hunt for Tony Blair will reunite strip regulars Robbie Coltrane, Rick Mail, Nigel Planer, and Jennifer Saunders in a 50s-style spoof. Well, good. Well, I'm a big fan of the comic strip. Yeah. And all those actors. And the voice of the Daleks for most of the classic series of Doctor Who, Roy Skelton, died last week. From 1967 till 1988, he most frequently voiced the screechings of the evil pepper pots from Scarrow, but he was most well-known in Britain as the voices of Zippy and George on the children's program Rainbow. Roy Skelton was 79. So what's on TV for the week of June 15th to the 21st? Wednesday, Waterloo Road continues on BBC One. In with the Flynn's continues on BBC One. It's a sitcom, Will Mellor's in it. And it's got Warren Clark as their father. So basically two brothers living together. One kind of has a family guy. The other guy kind of lays about and gives poor advice to his uh, nieces and nephews. And Warren Clark kind of stumbles in and does stuff. It, it, harmless. Well, Agatha Christie's Marple on ITV1 has Julia McKenzie. I've watched this ages ago on Channel 9. So we had the world premiere in Seattle, evidently. And why didn't they ask Evans? The all-star cast includes Richard Briers, Rick Mayall, Rafe Spall, Warren Clark, Georgia Moffat, and Mark Williams. What's your review of it? You know, I'm, I'm not remembering too much about it anymore. The review time sort of said it wasn't very Christie-like, because I guess they're yeah. kind of taking other stories and they are, wrenching yeah. Miss Marple into it. And, and then, oh, look, it's a, it's a house guest. It's Miss Marple. Yeah. But a great cast, and I'm sure worth watching. Yes. Thursday, The Shadow Line concludes on BBC Two. It's not been everyone's cup of tea, but I've enjoyed its sense of menace and great performances. Al Murray's Compete for the Meat continues on Dave. Mock the Week continues on BBC Two. 
And Ideal is on BBC Three. Friday, My Family is back for its 11th and thankfully final season on BBC One. Robert Lindsay stars in this long past at Sell by Date comedy. We did a feature on him in show 21. Also back for its 11th season is the panel show 8 Out of 10 Cats on Channel 4. Hosted by Jimmy Carr with regular Sean Locke and John Richardson. Channel 4 debuts King of... Claudia Winkleman hosts the comedy chat show and is joined each week by celebrity guests to discuss their passions and unique interests. And this week it's Sarah Milliken and Chris Evans. Sky One begins Wall of Fame with David Walliams hosting a, what's this, a topical panel show. <laughs> Never a shortage of those. <laughs> yeah, two teams get to talk and make fun of the week's news. Ah. Alan Carr Chetty Man returns to Channel 4, when they got a great new lineup this uh, week, with guests Jennifer Lopez, Jonathan Ross, and boxer David Hay. The Graham Norton Show is on BBC One with guests Cameron Diaz and Kathy Griffin. Saturday, the celebrity quiz Odd One In is back on ITV One. BBC One has Lee Max All-Star Cast, a new variety show with guests Frank Skinner, Fern Britton, Tess Daly, and James Blunt. Sunday, Horrible Histories with Stephen Fry makes the leap to BBC One with a compilation of award-winning sketches originally shown on CBBC. And a number of people have highly recommended this series to us, and believe me, we will get to it. There's only so many hours in the day. I assume you've not seen Horrible Histories yet? Just little bits here and there, yeah. People keep sending me YouTube links. Believe me, I want to watch it. I just haven't got to it yet. Well, Scott and Bailey continues on ITV1. Case Histories with Jason Isaac begins its last two-part mystery on BBC One. Coast continues on BBC Two. And Monday, Case Histories finishes on BBC One. James May's Things You Need to Know on BBC Two has the Top Gear presenter in a three-part documentary series, the first focusing on the human body. Tuesday, Primeval continues on Digital Channel Watch. Luther continues on BBC One. Three Men Go to Venice is on BBC Two with Rory McGrath, Dara Breen, and Griff Rhys-Jones traveling together again via boat, this time to Venice. Jack D's Lead Balloon continues on BBC Two. And Angry Boys continues on BBC Three. In the United States this week on BBC America Wednesday, there are repeats of Law & Order UK. Saturday, it's the US debut of Outcasts, and we'll have a feature about it in just a few minutes. It's followed by The Graham Norton Show, The Inbetweeners, and the debut of Come Fly With Me with David Williams and Matt Lucas. Did you end up watching those? Oh, yeah. What'd you think? They're funny. I gave copies to a couple of friends who all said, oh, I'm going to make this last, and both of them went home and watched the whole thing. I bailed after the first episode, but maybe that's just because I'm old now. But this is part of their new Ministry of Laughs, hosted by Chris Hardwick. Uh, Monday on BBC America, more Top Gear repeats and James May's Road Trip. Tuesday, Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares. And the Sundance Channel has reruns of the fifth season of Shameless Late Night on Fridays. DVD releases. The Dark Beginnings of Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Bell, and Mr. Doyle. The late Ian Richardson stars as a teaching doctor in Edinburgh, who apparently was the real-life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes, in this 2000 BBC TV movie that later became the series Murder Rooms. 
Doctor Who Frontios. This 1984 adventure starring Peter Davison is very apt for this week. If you make it through all eight episodes of Outcasts, which we'll be discussing in a moment, this makes the nearly perfect epilogue about colonists from Earth stranded on a far-off planet. Doctor Who, Time and the Ronnie, is the 1987 story that introduced Sylvester McCoy as the seventh Doctor. Which is still the only Doctor Who episode I've ever seen live on the BBC. Oh. <laughs> Sergeant Cribb, the complete series, this 1980 ITV detective series starred Alan Doby as a Victorian police detective and was shown on PBS's Mystery. Feature this week is on Outcasts. This week, the BBC science fiction drama Outcast sees its US debut on BBC America. The eight part drama set on an alien planet was not entirely successful despite an intriguing premise. And here's what you need to know. Set a mere 30 years in the future, when interstellar travel is slow but possible, Outcast is set entirely on the planet Carpathia and concerns the last survivors of Earth who have settled there, hoping to colonize the planet and keep humanity alive. As the series begins, humans have been living on Carpathia for 10 years, and we are introduced to the main characters, Mitchell Hoban, played by Jamie Bamber from Battlestar Galactica, two security officers, Cass Cromwell and Fleur Morgan, their boss, Stella Eisen, and the president of Carpathia, Richard Tate. As I said in my original review of Outcast back in Podcast 71, the plot is slow to reveal too much information at first, preferring to focus on setting up the characters and their relationships first. The colony is waiting for the very last transport ship to leave Earth to arrive after its five-year journey through space, while Hoban and Tate lock horns over a mysterious group that live out beyond Fort Haven's walls. As we come to discover, these people are advanced cultivars, artificial people who were specially designed to cope with harsh conditions but aren't considered truly human with the same rights. Several years earlier, they were cast out by Tate because he thought they were the cause of an epidemic that was killing all the children on Carpathia. The real culprit, it turns out, might be something much more sinister. With all this going on, the second episode will introduce us to Julius Berger, who arrives on the final ship, a dodgy politician who has discovered religion. We know we can't trust him because he has an American accent. And he's played by Eric Mobius from Ugly Betty. Stella, very good to see you again. Indeed. So, head of protection and security. No glass ceilings here. Pleased to see how did you get a space on one of the survival shuttles, Julius? Nothing like coming right to the point. Allegations have been made about the transporter's final minutes. It's my job to investigate. No, of course. The evacuation was controlled by remotely activated passes. I believe that families and essential personnel were the priority. And you don't think my lofty position in the Earth evacuation program made me important enough? Important? Just not essential. I took the pass of a friend. You took somebody's pass? Oh, she gave it to me. Catherine Burroughs. An extraordinary woman. Of course, I should have handed that 
gift of life to somebody else, at least. Why did she give it to you? She said my life was worth more than hers. Now we come to the part of the show where I say whether or not this is something you want to watch for eight weeks or not. I stuck with it, but mostly because, hey, it's science fiction on the BBC, and my tolerance for that is pretty high. But was it good science fiction? It seems almost cruel for BBC America to run outcasts immediately after Battlestar Galactica, one of the best science fiction dramas in the past 20 years, which is only going to draw comparisons to it. The people behind Outcast didn't really seem to understand science fiction, that it's not merely taking a premise, in this case settlers on a hostile land, putting it in the future, and bolting on tropes like clones and alien life forces, and that's what makes it science fiction. Worse, characters who naturally didn't like each other would spend an episode forced to rely on each other for survival, come out okay, and the next week be enemies again like it never happened. The reception in Britain to the original run of Outcast wasn't great. The first two weeks, it went out twice a week with new episodes on Monday and Tuesday nights. Then it was cut back to once a week, and with the ratings in freefall, the BBC rescheduled the remaining episodes late on Sunday nights. And it's extremely doubtful that a second season will be commissioned. BBC America also isn't doing Outcast any favors by putting it in a 60-minute time slot. The episodes ran 59 minutes on the BBC, which means about 14 minutes will be cut out when they go out on Saturday nights on BBC America. So watch it on demand if you want the full episodes. I put the call out on Facebook and Twitter to see if anyone I knew had actually made it through all eight episodes. Deborah on Twitter said, nope. Howard, who guest hosted the podcast back on show 14, said, quote, I have. It was passable, but definitely not something I would seek out. Characters were flat and uninteresting. The story seems to be a pastiche of similar stories of the Leaving the Earth genre. The Martian Chronicles and Earth 2 come to mind. Yeah, I very much thought of Earth 2, which was a 1994 Steven Spielberg series with almost the exact same premise. <laughs> Thomas wrote, quote, I made it through the first two episodes. I meant to watch it all, but when the BBC moved it and the cancellation announcement came, I figured why bother and gave up. Maybe I'll watch it when the next big blizzard blows through. So honestly, if anyone listening to this podcast now makes it through eight episodes on BBC America, I would love to hear from you. Feedback at BritishTVPodcast.com And now time for listener feedback. It's his inbox. Ryan's inbox. What a what a what is Ryan's inbox. <laughs> Susan on our Facebook page wrote, Just Watching Luther. I have to say, it's one of the best-written series I've had the pleasure to watch. It's quite dark, but very engaging. I've been standing up and screaming at the TV several times. Also, I've become quite a fan of both Idris Elba and Ruth Wilson. I recommend it to her if she's a big Ruth Wilson fan to catch Small Island, which not only has Ruth Wilson, but Benedict Cumberbatch playing her husband. Boy, missed that one. Because I've been catching up a little on Benedict's earlier roles, like Hawking and uh, was it Steward of Life Backwards mm -hmm. and things like that. But I haven't seen Small Island. Well, Benedict Cumberbatch fans, mm -hmm. we will do a feature on him when Sherlock comes back. And in response to our feature about BBC America last week, Rachel commented, I think we do need BBC America, because otherwise it would be practically impossible to get those shows it airs legally. But it could definitely be come a lot better. 
I wish they would add some more new shows instead of buying the rights to air Star Trek and X-Files. And Tony said, I rarely watch any British TV. Most of it is rubbish today. As long as they have Doctor Who, then I'll be happy. Well, I have to say something interesting I just thought of. The reason I went to San Francisco, the well, the... I had a lot of things I wanted to do, but the reason we just chose to go now is to see the world premiere of Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City, mm-hmm. songs by two of the gents from the Scissor Sisters, which, although an American group, are much more popular overseas. And at first they were aiming to take it to Broadway, but now they're work, thinking about work visas and who of the cast could go along and thinking of moving it to London instead because Armistead's books have been huge there and it co-funded all of the TV miniseries that were made. Yeah, he's much more well-known in Britain than he is in the United States, ironically. There's a number of... There's a couple of actors who have been attached to this project for years, and I expect they're the ones they would try to take with them and then recast overseas if if it worked out that way. Usually they have to do kind of an exchange if they send American actors over there, then we get some Brits, which, hey, who's complaining, you know? Yeah, I would suspect that uh, Tales of the City musical would play very well in England. Yeah, well, it was interesting because nearly every tryout, we have a lot of tryouts in Seattle that go on to Broadway, and that was sort of the plan at first with this, and then somebody said, well, you know, it might do really well in England with the cast behind it. Which ironically might lead to a Broadway transfer. exactly. (laughs) Lots of roads to Broadway. Yeah. How was the show? It was good. I don't know that the music, I, there weren't any, a lot of songs I was thinking about too much afterwards, mm. but I enjoyed the performances. Um, they took two books and plot points from each of them and streamlined it, took out some other plots that didn't need to be there. It was kind of interesting because like most states, California is just embroiled in this whole medical marijuana issue. And in the newspaper column and the book and the miniseries for TV, Edgar is repeatedly offered um, marijuana by Anna and he never takes her up on it but they had him do that in one scene in particular because he's suffering from kidney failure he's obviously in a lot of pain and he decides he wants to smoke his first marijuana cigarette and she kind of coaxes him through it and I thought well that was kind of a smart thing to put in there anyway if that's what most of the people involved in production are supporting because if you are feeling in terrible pain why not smoke a marijuana cigarette if it's going to ease some of the symptoms but I thought that was just really straying from all the history of the different versions of the the book and the show before now. Was it done as a period piece or set contemporary? No, it was set in 1976. Okay. And it had all, because the Scissor Sisters have a lot of disco in their music, there was a lot of disco influence in an, a bit of the score. Hmm. And parts of it that were just a throwaway line or two in the book, they made whole production numbers out of how... Anna Madrigal's character at one point says that there's a theory that people who gravitate towards wanting to live in San Francisco are from the lost city of Atlantis and they're trying and they're being reunited. And so they had this, she had this sort of house party, but she was singing about how with people from all over Russian Hill showing up, which in the book, she only invites a couple people and as well as in the TV show, but she had just tons of people there and she's singing how they're all from Atlantis and there's another scene that is really sad to look at in retrospect where all the uh, the characters called the A-gays, which are the very wealthy elite of San Francisco who are coupled up, talk about how they're going to make a retirement home for all the rich old gay men that are going to end up with, you know, hot, hunky, young 
stewards taking care of them. And that was a whole production number two where hmm. they're describing all the different things that they're going to have in this retirement home. And that was just in one little bit in the book, but they turned that into a bigger thing. So it was kind of fun. Okay. That was uh, Tales of the City, the musical. Yep. Oh, and the other th- one thing, too, is that they made the character of Norman Neil Williams, who um, much less creepy. And if you've seen the first Tales of the City, he was such a dirtbag creep that you can't ever imagine why Laura Linney's Marianne would want to date him. But in, And so I always thought you know, he needed to be at least a little more charming at the beginning so she'd go out with him before she starts realizing that he's he's not quite all there. And that's what they did in this. They made him pretty nice to begin with. And then you sort of see that he's kind of breaking down in cracks and hmm. not all, all that he seemed. So there, that's my review of Tales of the City. If you're able to see it still in San Francisco, runs another few weeks. They've extended it a few weeks. So there might be tickets left. All right. We'd like you to go visit our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com, and there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 87 shows. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can send it to feedback at britishtvpodcast.com. Also, we have a Facebook page, which people are starting to use now, so head there. And you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash podcast. So I'd have to say that uh, Friday night is looking pretty good, especially all these uh, new shows on Channel 4. Yep. Just keeps pouring on and on. I'm After my trip, and then I had a huge amount of work last week, I'm really far behind on just catching up on all the various shows. I haven't seen The End of Injustice yet, and uh, the last episode of Shadowline is this week, and I still haven't seen the penultimate episode. So I need to set aside some time this weekend and just bore through all this stuff. Well, the only American show I've said it many times that I watch is So You Think You Can Dance, which is on now. But um, with the return of the Judge Mary Murphy, I I have to tape it so I can forward through her because I can't stand to listen to her. So that takes up far less time to watch every week now. (laughs) I'm barreling through the judge's reviews and just watching the dancing. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back. It'll be summer, officially. Yeah. Woohoo. We'll be wearing swimsuits in the next... Only if it gets much warmer. Ryan will be in his his very discreet two-piece bathing costume and... No, no, no. I wore one of those, like, 1910 tank top Oh, okay. The singlet. The singlet. What do they call those for for men? (laughs) You know, where you have a straw hat on. Yeah. And I'll wear wear the bathing costume with the silk stockings and... There you go. There we go. Okay. Modesty must be preserved when recording the podcast. Definitely. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.